This podcast is sponsored by the Sarasota Bradenton International Airport, a world-class gateway to Florida's Gulf Coast. Served by both domestic and international carriers, SRQ is conveniently centered in a region full of exciting attractions and only minutes away from award-winning white sand beaches. I don't know what it is with journalists' fascination with looking backward, but make no mistake, we do like to look backward. And in this week's Airline Weekly, we did just that. We posted our annual mid-year review, looking at the bigger airline stories and trends around the world. Yeah, a lot going on. Some of it predictable, some not. And I thought we should follow suit in the Airline Weekly Lounge. And while it won't be anywhere as comprehensive as we did in the issue, we will look back at some of the bigger developments thus far in 2016. But first, we have to talk about Turkish Airlines, which is wrestling with something that no company should have to endure. Yeah, last week's terrorist attack killed 40 people at Ataturk International. Another blow to an airline that was already in a bit of a vulnerable situation financially. So we'll start the show with Turkish, and then we'll move on to some year in review questions. And we'll talk about Allegiance, change of tactic. I'm Jason Cottrell, vice president of Airline Weekly. I'm Seth Kaplan, managing partner of Airline Weekly. And you are entering the Airline Weekly Lounge. Joining us, we're trying to assess how the recent terror attack at Turkish Airlines' biggest hub will affect the carrier. Obviously, it will be severe, but let's start with how Turkish was doing before the attack. Yeah, not not so great by its standards. Uh, Turkey, of course, uh, facing severely depressed inbound tourism. We're still growing wildly, but not growing profitably as they previously had. Uh, you know, the first quarter, for example, the most recent quarter that they reported, a negative 13% operating margin. Uh, that was down to full 10 points from a year prior when they had negative 3%. Uh, so they really needed a big summer uh, to help them out. Uh, you know, they'd kind of been doing what they could to uh, to shift things around a bit and, and uh, you know, try to minimize their exposure to the worst of what's going on there. In particular, uh, by trying to carry even more Sixth Freedom traffic, uh, you know, in other words, people connecting in Istanbul between two other countries, even more of that uh, than they had previously done. And they were already very big in that arena. OK, looking forward, I think it's worth comparing this to the Paris and Brussels attack. Do you think Turkish's experience will be different than that of, say, Air France and Brussels Airlines? And let me get even more specific. How much does Turkey's geography matter here? And how much does the business model of Turkish Airways matter here? You know, before we start group Paris and Brussels together, there's a big distinction between those two. Uh, And Brussels is more similar to Istanbul in a very important way. Simply the fact that, you know, the Paris attacks didn't happen at the airport. Uh, Brussels did. And this most recent attack in Istanbul, of course, did as well. You know, what Air France experienced in Paris was was just all about sort of the broader uh, exposure uh, to to, you know, to a market that did suffer a decline in in inbound tourism, certainly. Um, But, you know, I I don't know that there were very many people who said, you know, I'm not going to connect in Paris between two other points because of that. Uh, You know, Brussels. You might have had some of that, but I mean, look, Brussels Airlines just not nearly as, as big of an airline, as big of a six freedom carrier as, as Turkish Airlines is. So, you know, to whatever extent that happened in Brussels, you know, here, here you're going to have even a, a much bigger impact of that kind 
in Istanbul, um, you know, another big difference, of course, is that Turkey, in terms of its perception around the world and, and the reality of declining tourism numbers, as, as I mentioned just a moment ago, was already in, in very bad shape in a way that wasn't the case in in, uh, uh, in Paris or Brussels before this. Uh, so, you know, on one hand, it was already battered. On the other hand, you know, Turkey has now become a place that Paris and Brussels did not become, which is to say uh, a place that that that, uh, you know, if, if not a majority of people around the world would, would just avoid at this point, certainly a very significant number of people, you know, of course, the most risk averse among people. Uh, yeah, would, would have avoided Paris and certainly Brussels after after what happened there. Um, but now you're sort of getting into a territory in Turkey where it's just become a perceived as a high-risk destination where, you know, plenty of people who are okay taking certain chances uh, just won't go there. And that's not something that happened uh, in, in Paris and Brussels. And how will these attacks affect Pegasus compared to Turkish? Well, yeah, Pegasus carries a lot of, uh, a lot of domestic travel. Uh, traffic, uh, you know, which is which is less impacted, you know, people traveling within Turkey, uh, you know, by and large, Turks traveling within Turkey, not Turkish Airlines itself carries a fair amount of that traffic. But yeah, Pegasus does a lot of that. Um, but, you know, it, it does carry a lot of inbound traffic into uh, into Turkey. You know, I, I don't know that it matters all that much that Pegasus's big hub is not the one where the attack happened. I, I just don't know if there's anybody who's going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm OK connecting it to be a Gokchen, but I'm not going to add a Turk. Uh, you know, in terms of six freedom traffic and so forth. Pegasus also just sort of being the smaller carrier in some ways, uh, you know, that always leaves you a little more vulnerable. Um, an airline that that although it had a very promising start, uh, you know, has, has shown its financial vulnerability more recently. Um, and you would just think that whereas Turkish just kind of has more scope to reorient itself to some degree, certainly not to escape what's going on, but to sort of uh, shift things around somewhat. Pegasus just has less margin for error simply because it is the challenger, it is the uh, smaller airline, uh, an airline that, um, particularly with, with, a, with a very large leisure component, uh, was was counting on a very big summer this year. And um, you can only imagine that uh, those hopes of, you know, uh, are fading fast. Can you put any numbers to that? I mean, I'm presuming you expect it to be a bleak summer for both of these carriers. Can oh, yeah. Have, uh, it, can you give it any scale? Yeah, it's it's just, uh, gosh, Jason, um, you know, you're talking about carriers that are very seasonal to begin with. And when you have something like this happen at, you know, about as bad of a time of year as it can in terms of you know, impacting the summer. Um, and, and again, this on top of, uh, just everything else that's gone wrong in Turkey, um, you know. So, so this is not something anybody's going to see as a one-off. You know, people see this as as just uh, just the latest and most severe blow in terms of your know, reasons not to to travel to Turkey or, or perhaps even to, to 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 transit Turkey with this having happened at the airport. Although, yeah, airside, I mean, you know, you know travel uh, travelers were were impacted, but uh, you know, you can imagine people steered clear just just uh, just overall. Um, in a way that they would not have probably previously done. So look, um, it, it's it's going to be a really bad summer. We'll we'll see when the carriers release their third quarter earnings here in the coming month. Uh, that the 
excuse me, the second quarter earnings, the second quarter, of course, having having just completed last week and then the earnings reports to come, you know, if they can give any sort of color in terms of uh, in terms of their forward bookings. But there's 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 no question they are awful. It's going to be a very bad year for these airlines. Okay, moving from one airline that's struggling to uh, one that certainly is not, is Allegiant. Uh, The airline announced 12 new routes last week, some of which will include Newark. Those routes will go head-to-head with United. This is surely out of character for Allegiant, but will it work? Yeah, um, although less out of character than than it, than it once was. Yeah, they have been going into uh, some some busier airports. But you're right, n- nothing nothing quite like Newark. Um, I mean, look, they've been right a lot more than they've been wrong, right? So, uh, so you know, will it work? I mean, it would seem that, you know, just broadly speaking, the opportunity to go into some very dense markets uh, with a handful of flights per week and and uh, sort of skim off the most price sensitive traffic. Uh, sure, why not? You know, obviously, you know, you, you've got the the cost and complexities of of operating at Newark. But you know, on the other hand, let's see how United responds. Um, it, it has in some ways become more difficult to be an ultra low cost carrier uh, in in the U.S. Uh, you know, Spirit in particular for a long time sort of just kind of tried to operate under the radar of of the legacy airlines in particular, although not only them, uh, and say, Hey, look, you know, there's all this traffic in some of these big markets, you know, we can fly once or twice a day between Chicago and, and Dallas and pick off some of the most price sensitive, uh, customers and Hey, United American won't care too much. You know, everybody can coexist but again, but then guess what happened, uh, is United American and Delta did begin caring, um, you, you know, and, and seemingly taking that kind of capacity much more seriously you know, with, with those, you know, the, the basic economy product that, that Delta already has and that American and United quite clear, quite clearly are going to have uh, some point here soon. And, and basically sort of sending a message to the ultra low cost carriers that, that no, you can't just come in with, uh, with some limited amounts of service and, and pick off uh, some of the, some of the business that was, that was previously flying the, uh, the legacy airline. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. Uh, you know, if anything, United is the least fierce competitor of those big three. But yeah, no, here's a Allegiant in, in a small way anyway, uh, at least um, uh, attacking another legacy hub. Um, and, and so uh, we'll see how it works out for them. I mean, I said before, they've been right more often than they've been wrong, which is not to say they've never been wrong. They've made mistakes. Hawaii is, is the big one that comes to mind, right? went out and actually bought 757s for the purpose of serving Hawaii. That didn't work. Um, they've had a lot of other markets that have just sort of worked less well than they used to work because of the uh, of the energy bust. Uh, you know, North Dakota to Las Vegas kind of flying, uh, which was booming a few years ago, not booming, uh, of course, anymore. And so, uh, you know, they've had to reorient themselves because of that and because of just probably some of the easiest opportunities of those kinds, the small city to big city markets. Uh, already having been uh, having been picked through. You're right, though, Jason. I mean, the world has changed when Allegiant of all airlines shows up at Newark. All right, let's move on to the half year in review part of the show. It's been a weird first half, if you don't mind me using a technical term like weird. <laughs> Labor strikes, nasty revenue trends, Brazil's economy, Russia's economy, terrorism, all those things made headlines. But at the same time, in the U.S., China, and Australasia, things are going pretty well. Yeah, uh, certainly the dichotomy the there. Uh, you know, no, no change uh, for the U.S. Uh, in in that regard. Um, you know, the question sort of is just um, the opposite of the question that uh, we were asking oh, a decade ago. 
not on this podcast. We didn't have this podcast, but uh, in, in the world, you know, back then it was, oh, you know, can, can the U.S. carriers tur- turn themselves around and catch up with uh, carriers in other parts of the world? Now, you know, can can everybody else sort of get up to uh, to levels in in North America and specifically in in the U.S. where carriers are are doing best? You know, China is an interesting one because there's just this ongoing question about you know with, with the economy there broadly seeming to slow down. You know, can the consumer economy hold up? And specifically, you know, for our purposes, can airline demand hold up uh, in in the face of everything that's been going on? I mean, so far the airlines are doing pretty well. Uh, of course, expanding with zeal, uh, you know, particularly intercontinentally. Um, so, in the face of a slowing economy, at least in some important regards, um, you know, is the demand going to be there to uh, to justify all that? New capacity. We'll see. Uh, you mentioned Australasia. Certainly, the, uh, the the two big carriers that that we think of there are uh, Qantas and, and Air New Zealand, both doing well. Air New Zealand holding up well. Uh, Qantas, um, you, you know, having really turned around its fortunes. In the case of Air New Zealand, we'll see. Uh, you, you know, with, with with some important new capacity coming into their market. American flying now to Auckland, for example, uh, that's that's a lot of new capacity for a for a not huge market in terms of the uh, ultra long haul part of their network. But, um, you know, they've navigated a lot uh, over, over the past decade or so. So, uh, again, another one of those carriers, I said, a before about a legion, but one that's been right more than it's been wrong. So um, uh, see if that can continue. And we'll see if uh, Virgin Australia, on the other hand, which obviously the big exception there to, to what you said about carriers doing well there. If they can uh, somehow manage to turn themselves around, because that's an airline that can't seem to find it, its footing, you know, kind of being uh, torn in different directions between its uh, its different owners who themselves are airlines. Airlines uh, sometimes seem to be more interested in in uh, the strategic value of Virgin Australia to their own businesses rather than in, in Virgin Australia itself making uh, as much money as it possibly can. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see if, if that can uh, can change. But yeah, no, lots uh, lot going on. We wrote in this week's Airline Weekly that IATA expects the industry to earn $40 billion in 2016. And I don't mean to, again, bombard you with jargon, but that sounds pretty good to me. Can you add any perspective to that number? Well, it's the, it's the biggest number ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's right it's more it's more than 39 billion yeah um yeah exactly but, uh, you know the question is you know is that trajectory going to continue uh or or will that be the the high water mark i mean it, it'll it'll be tough you know with with fuel prices being off their lows and with uh, you know revenues in in most regions being under pressure you know it would be tough to follow that up with another record um you know airlines have sort of uh uh, you know, for, for all the problems in the world, as, as you mentioned a moment ago, and, and severe problems in certain markets, uh, no question, uh, you know, airlines have, very broadly speaking, anyway, kind of had the best of both worlds in some senses where, uh, you know, rapidly falling fuel prices for a while there and a revenue picture that was holding up reasonably well. You know, now you don't have fuel prices falling anymore and you've got all kinds of revenue pressure in a lot of places. Kind of hard to imagine that the that the numbers can can keep growing without something giving, you know, without either fuel falling again, um, and and, you know, and it can only fall so far. Obviously, I mean, by definition, it can't go below zero, but ha- had very little scope to continue falling between the levels that it was at earlier this year, and then again, just those uh, those revenue pressures. So we'll see if they can continue doing this well, um, and we'll see, of course, in fact, if they are able to meet 
that I had a forecast. The world is a very dynamic place and, uh, you know, a, a lot has changed, including, by the way, Brexit, uh, which came subsequent to that most recent uh, forecast by IATA. One of the bigger stories in the first half was Bombardier's C-Series, which has struggled to find buyers. But it found a few more this year, namely Delta and Air Canada. My question is, if C-Series is going to turn things around, what's that going to look like? What's the scenario where C-Series goes from disappointment to a success? Certainly had a good half. Um, you know, th those are just not they're not just any airlines that that signed on you see an airline like well you mentioned the delta and air canada i mean those are, those are some serious airlines who you know in the case of air canada um probably a combination of, of really good pricing and uh and some politics uh in the case of delta probably just extraordinarily good pricing but look you know it, let's see for one thing if, if bombardier ultimately decides to buy uh, to build rather an even larger version a, a cs 500 you know, perhaps you know at that point you've got a, a third narrow body program out there um that is competitive in a lot of the space where the uh where the airbus and, and boeing uh, you know, a320 and 737 families operate uh and, and that could really change the world you know in, in a very good way for airlines in a, in a much less good way for, for airbus and boeing you, you know if, if every time an airline goes out looking for airplanes there, there are three rather than two Part of it is that once you have enough of them out there, then it becomes kind of this more liquid asset. It becomes this airplane that, you know, hey, if you ever have to sell it, it there might be somebody to sell it to. You know, certainly that that was had a big part to do with the reluctance of airlines not wanting to go first. You know, it's not just a matter of, you know, being afraid to be different. I mean, it, it is just that when you're buying an airplane that, you know, nobody else has, um, it, it can look like a riskier asset. But, you know, little by little, as, as there are more orders, that, that you know, becomes less the case. So, uh, you know, we'll see if, if Delta in particular here sort of achieved a couple goals. You know, number one, getting aircraft almost certainly on, on the cheap. But on the other hand, just sort of uh, changing the world in an important way for all airlines, not just itself. Uh, you know, if in fact the C-Series does become a, a, a viable long-term contender here you know i mean it's a long way away from that i mean it just to be clear um you know at this point we're talking about uh, an aircraft family that, yes managed to generate a, a um a few very important orders um but with you know pricing that's certainly almost certainly unsustainable for the uh for the long term so it's it's you know with with airbus and boeing having sold their newly engined a320s and 737 by the thousands not to mention you know prior generations and, and so forth we're a long way away from the c-series now with several hundred units ordered being a uh a, being a real contender in, in the narrow body space you know as i was preparing for this show i realized it's rather hard to encapsulate six months into 30 minutes but then it hit me we can do it because we have the technology and it's called dun dun uh, a lightning round so the category is, so the category is, and I don't know why we have a category this time we never had before, but this time we do, and it's called superlatives. I will name a superlative. You tell me the 2016 story that fits that superlative and why, and preferably in a lightning fast manner. Okay, here goes easy one. What was the biggest story? Well, we we mentioned it in another context a few minutes ago. The uh, you know the Chinese intercontinental expansion. I'd say uh, you could nominate that one. I mean, it seems like in our routes and networks pages in the newsletter, almost no week goes by where you know we're not announcing some new route 
between some, I mean, forget secondary, you know, tertiary Chinese city, uh, and sometimes a, a, a not huge city uh, in the far abroad from China. This is very, very rapid expansion into markets where, uh, you know, we'll see how they do. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it, you know, in some cases hard to even analyze uh, the, the prospects for these markets because they're not huge markets and they're markets where, you know, there's probably going to be a fair amount of stimulation now that the flights exist, uh, where it would have been very difficult to get between these these places in, in the past. You know, again, that in the face of the economic issues in China, let's see how they do. At a minimum, some some exciting new nonstop travel options for people, uh, well, not not just Chinese people, obviously, but for uh, for people abroad wanting to go visit China. Exciting opportunities for airports everywhere. Uh, you know, there's there's. Uh, you know, pro, pro, there probably aren't too many mid-sized, not to mention large uh, airports in, in you know, particularly destinations around the world that have some tourist appeal that aren't uh, talking to the Chinese carriers at this point because they rather clearly are willing to consider almost anything. OK, I'm going to regulate this next one a little bit. I'm going to uh, ask you to exclude terrorism or accidents. So keep this to a business finance sense. The scariest story. I guess you might say the Gulf carriers, if in fact, you know, the demand just isn't there to support all the aircraft they have on order. And this is not a new story. I mean, for, for, for a decade, you know, people have been asking, have the, uh, have the Gulf carriers ordered too many aircraft? And they've, of course, continued sort of humming along. But, um, you know, in the wide body space, especially there, there are more people sort of starting to ask, you know, is it, is it overdone? If that's the case. And if low oil prices persist, you know, and if at some point that becomes a fiscal issue for places like Abu Dhabi and, and Doha in particular, you know, Qatar um, in particular, you know, in terms of being able to continue to support the expansion of these airlines, well, that could have broad implications, obviously. Uh, negative implications, of course, for, for the airframe manufacturers, for Boeing and Airbus. For the rest of the world, kind of a mixed picture. I mean, on one hand, uh, you know, if, if what I just said is true, well, that means that you'd have a lot of excess capacity continue to fly around. You know, these, these rather well-liked products with airlines continually having to sort of offer rather low fares to attract people on board. But on the other hand, other airlines could benefit from uh, any decline in, in the wide body market. So, you know, if, if you're those airlines, you know, particularly at this point, the U.S. big three, certainly still the uh, European carriers, most notably Lufthansa, but also others, uh, you know, complaining about the uh, the Gulf carriers. Uh, well, if they have ordered too many aircraft and if they're not able to take all of them, then you know, guess what? There are going to be some deals to be had in, in coming years on wide body aircraft. Too early to say if, if, if that's the case. Let's see what happens at Farnborough. Uh, yeah, I think that's going to be uh, a really interesting story. Um, you know, what happens or what doesn't happen there will, uh, will I think, tell us a lot about the aircraft market going forward. And again, implications from the answer to that question, really, for uh, for all kinds of stakeholders. Most surprising. Yeah, you might say the Alaska uh, acquisition of Virgin America. Um, I mean, not not that it's. You know, not that you can't see the logic. Yeah, you can look back now and say, "Oh, well, that all made sense." But, um, but in terms of something that you know that that uh, nobody predicted, and you know, you you can quantify that. I mean, that's that's not just uh, you know me saying nobody predicted it. I mean, if you if you look at what happened to uh, you know Virgin's share price after that bidding war between JetBlue and Alaska, I think it's fair to say you know, not very many people saw that uh, saw that coming, and and certainly nobody apparently thought 
version was worth what Alaska ended up paying for it on its own merits. I mean, again, that, that all might turn out to be perfectly rational for, for Alaska um, with its ambitions in California. But yeah, Virgin sold itself high. If anything, you know, at times people talked about maybe JetBlue and Virgin, you know, if, if somebody would ask me in the past, you know, a year ago, okay, you know, are there any other mergers out there? I'd say, well, yeah, I don't know if this would ever happen, but, you know, JetBlue and, and Virgin America, perhaps few people ever really uh, mentioned Alaska and Virgin America. And, and uh, here we are with a, with uh, another rather sizable merger, you know, in a, uh, what an $8 billion a year airline, revenue airline, uh, soon to be formed. Biggest head scratcher. Hmm. I guess the, uh, the low cost units of the uh, European carriers, you know, Eurowings and, and Transavia for, for Lufthansa and Air France, KLM, respectively. Uh, and look, you know, this might all work out, but just with the history, uh, not only in Europe, but but in Europe alone, uh, you know, this has been tried before and, and uh, you know, it hasn't worked. Buzz and Go and Snowflake and, you know, um, Eurowings a little bit different from those in that it's also a long haul. Uh, unit, yeah, and you can list reasons why this is different. But in the broadest sense of all, it is something that's been tried before and, and hasn't really worked. You know, they are very enthusiastically pursuing it again, uh, not just pursuing it, but willing to use a lot of political capital with their uh, with their labor unions uh, to achieve it. I mean, if you look at all of the strikes that Lufthansa and Air France have taken, you know, a lot of that has to do with resistance by their workers to these uh, these low cost units. Uh, you know, they might end up being right, but uh, they better really be right um, because. Uh, it doesn't only have to work; it has to be work. It has to work well enough to generate just all the hundreds of millions of dollars in, in losses that they've taken because of uh, because of the strikes to achieve them. Uh, and, and again, it's it's not something that is generally uh, on the world. Uh, you know, speaking broadly here, kind of grouping them together, each of them, you know, they're, they're all different in their own ways, but um, but just you know, low cost, long haul units of airlines, uh, you know. Jetstar has worked well for Qantas, um, and uh, you know you, you could say that that's about where the list begins and ends. Although there's some other young ones around the world that it's, it's still too early to say. You know, in, in Northeast Asia in particular, some of that's kind of in, in its early days. Okay, saddest story. Well, again, if you exclude terrorism and accidents, Brazil that has to be up there, right? Uh, just, just. Uh, a market that's just been absolutely destroyed economically and and you know airlines have tried to do what they can to keep up but they just haven't been able to cut fast enough to get supply in line with rapidly shrinking demand now now is the worst over you know we'll we'll, we'll see uh, you know at some point here there will have been a bottom and and at this point it at least hasn't actually taken any important airlines uh, out of business. I mean, your know, goal is, is is struggling to 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 stay uh, to stay afloat. So far, it's it's still there. We'll see. I mean, I mean Azul is almost certainly struggling very very badly. It, it of course not a publicly traded airline, so you can't you can't see as much about what's going on there. But yeah, no, that that's that's a market which. Uh, you know, seem to have a lot of promise, and and now it's it's uh, hard to imagine it not taking years just to get back to the levels of demand that it was uh, that it was at a couple of years ago. And we don't want to close on a sad note, so we'll do just the opposite. Uh, most heartwarming. Yeah, maybe what I mentioned talked about it before the uh, the C series. You know that that was looking like perhaps uh, just just one of the real big busts in uh, 
in aircraft history. Uh, and, and hey, it may yet be. I mean, it's, as I said, not not out of the woods yet. But compared to where it was six months ago, you got to say that that, uh, that that Bombardier has um, at least a little bit of a bounce in its step that it did not have at the, at the beginning of the year. All right, that ends our lightning round. You can put the past six months to bed. You can also put this show to bed. And before we go, if you'd like to read the cover story we just discussed and you're not an Airline Weekly subscriber, send me an email. Just this once, we'll send it to you. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. See you next week in the Airline Weekly Lounge.